Welcome back to Bodies in the Bayous, Season 2, The Candyman. I'm Morgan. And I'm Gretchen. The Candyman, a.k.a. Dean Coral, also known as Houston's mass murderer, stalked young boys in Houston and surrounding suburbs from 1970 to 1973, along with two teenage accomplices, Elmer Wayne Henley and David Owen Brooks. Elmer Wayne Henley would put a stop to Coral's reign of terror, by killing him with his own gun. Season 2, Episode 7, Giving a Name to the Remains, Part 2. So, the next victim that we're going to talk about today is Randall Lee Harvey. Randall was a skinny boy with a large overbite. He was 15 years old. He was last seen by his family on March 9th, 1971. He left home on his bike, headed to work at a gas as a gas station attendant in Oak Forest. Um, Harvey was brought to Coral's house by uh, Brooks, and apparently Brooks and Randall uh, were friends or acquaintances at the time. He was raped and tortured before being shot in the head and then buried in the boat shed. Harvey was actually not identified until 2008. In 2006, the Harris County Medical Examiner's Office began to take a new look at the um, at this case. When they did that, they found that the last three unidentified remains were still at the Houston County Medical Examiner's Office in um, refrigeration. And so they sent those remains out for uh, facial reconstruction. At that point in time, police records did have Randall Lee Harvey's name in the file as a possible victim of coral due to his age, the time period that he went missing and the location that he went missing from. The difficulty uh, for this was in locating a relative that they could uh, talk to about those remains and then subsequently get DNA from. Randall's mother had actually left the area. Um, she had remarried. She had changed not only her last name, but the last name of her two daughters. So it took quite a bit of investigation to locate them. Sadly, um, his mother had actually passed away without knowing what had happened to her son. When the sisters were contacted about identifying the remains, they were a little bit shocked because they truly believed that all of Coral's victims had been identified. And so identifying the remains through DNA would become a little bit tricky. Again, we're talking 2008, so not the type of absolutely mind-blowing, <laughs> spectacular DNA uh, forensics that we have nowadays. Um, at that point in time, you know, DNA was still at its almost infancy stage. I mean, it had been used for quite a few years, but... Um, we certainly did not have the ability that we have nowadays. And so in looking at those remains, they were not able to get enough of a DNA sample for a full profile to compare that profile to the sisters. What they did get was they got enough of a profile that said that there's a good possibility that this person was linked to the sisters, but there was also a good possibility that that person was linked to a large percentage of the population. So they had to go back and use some other techniques. And in order to do that, they started to look at the um, 
facial structure of the remains. And that um, the remains had similar facial features to the facial features of the sisters, and that was a pronounced overbite. They also looked at um, the remains shared um, what else the the remains shared to try to do that, to try to make that connection, looking at dental, that type of thing. Um, so they had enough similarities to say that they really felt like this was probably Randall Lee Harvey. But then the last thing that they did was they actually went back to David Owen Brooks and they asked David Owen Brooks to help them out. And so they had the sketch, the facial reconnect construction and they asked him who that individual was. He said that he could not tell them who that individual was, that he didn't know the name, but what he did do was he did draw them a map of the um, area and the house of where that person lived. And when looking at that map, that actual map actually showed Randall Lee Harvey's house where he lived at the time. With that, they were able to say that these remains belonged to Randall Lee Harvey and identified him. So I thought David Owen Brooks knew who Randall was. So why was he not able to identify or, you know, identify him? I think what had happened is over the time that he had spent in prison, he had forgotten the names of the victims, you know, and maybe, maybe that's partly just because he wanted to forget their names. Um, I don't know, you know, but I'm thinking that he had just simply forgotten their names. I mean, he certainly knew where the, where he lived and that's not, from what we can tell, that's not where he was picked up from. He was probably picked up from the um, the store, the gas station where he worked. But I think he had just simply forgotten his name. You don't think that was like his way of trying to um, seem less involved in, in his murder? I don't think so. Um, I really... I think at that point, he anything that he could do to be helpful in identifying these remains would have actually, in in some ways, would have helped him, because he was trying to get probation at that point in time. I don't know that that he ever would have gotten probation had he lived, but at that point, what we know is that he had had applied for probation to try to get out. And so being helpful and being able to say to the parole board, I'm helpful in trying to identify these last remaining victims would, would certainly have gone in his favor mm -hmm. and them coming back and saying, you know, he's not helping us or he's denying even knowing who this is. Plus the drawing the map really did give them the, the information that they needed. So, I mean, I find it weird that he would be able to remember that. It's not the name, but I guess maybe that was more of a long-term memory or something, you know? Like, yeah. I don't, I don't really know. Maybe it's a self-preservation yeah. thing, you yeah. know? I mean, if, if you can not remember their names anymore, maybe they don't haunt you as much. I don't, I would think that it would be haunting to have done this, but you know, we don't really know from him. What we do know is finally after 35 years, Randall was returned to his family. His remains were cremated and his ashes scattered um, in Lake Livingston along with the ashes of his mother. So.
The next of Coral's victims that we're going to talk about are Gregory Mallory Winkle, age 15, and David Hilligris, age 13. Last seen on May 29, 1971, on their way to swim in a neighbor's pool. They both lived in the Houston Heights area. Gregory's mother was Selma Winkle. Selma said that she received a call from her son that night, and he told her that he was going to Freeport swimming with friends. David's parents were Fred and Dorothy. David was one of six children born to Fred and Dorothy. David and his family lived in a small, one-story, freshly painted yellow house with a neat lawn. David lived there his whole life in the house with his parents, who purchased it just a few years before he was born. So David's mother actually lived in that house up until the point that she passed away also. Um, she had gone to live for a while with family as she got older and then wanted to come back and live at the house for her final days and she passed away living there. David's family actually had a trip planned that day after he disappeared. His bags were already packed and he was looking forward to going on family vacation. Instead, the family went to Freeport looking for their son, checking hotels, beaches, and asking tourists if they had seen them. You know what's so strange about that is because from Pasadena to Freeport, that's quite a distance. I mean, you know, you wonder how they were getting there. Yeah, and I something about Especially that at that age. You know? Something about that phone call because when you see reports on that phone call, you kind of see this whole thing that says, you know, David made a phone call to his mom that went dead. And then you hear another report that says that he told her about going to Freeport to go swimming. And so my thought is that he managed to say, hey, we're going to Freeport to go swimming. And then the phone kind of went dead there. Um, and so she probably didn't get any more information out of him. And it's one of those situations, I'm sure, where you're like, when he gets home, we're going to, you know, there's going to be a punishment, especially because they're going, they're leaving you know, too. So there's this whole situation that kind of goes in there where, you know, the, I don't think the parents were like, oh, okay, that's a, that's all right. I think it was more like this very quick, hey, mom, we're going to go. And then the phone kind of goes dead. Mm -hmm. So Ben um, Hildegast, who was uh, the brother of Gregory, said to people that he had actually seen his brother and his friend get into a white van or truck not far from the house. When their son did not return on May 30th, they called the police and reported him missing. They were told that he must be at a friend's house and they should call back the next day. His mother implored them to go out and look for her son, that he was not the type of boy not to come home. Dorothy said she feared immediately that something had happened to her son. He was excited for the next four weeks of school, and he was not the type of boy to stay out like this. So Wayne Henley, who we've talked about in length, lived just a few doors down from the Hildegast house and the Winkle home. And, I mean, when we're talking a few doors, from my understanding, you could kind of stand on the lawn and see kind of point in the direction and see like where his house was located. Um, when 
when the boys did not return, when the boys were little, so when Wayne and David were little boys, Wayne's grandmother would bring him to play with, uh, play with David. Sadly, during the two years that Wayne was missing, he had run into Dorothy several times, and it had seemed like he was very concerned, asking about David, reassuring her that um, David would return. He even um, would put flyers up in the neighborhood. Wayne even offered to take David's younger brother, Gregory, who was 12 at the time, fishing with him. You know, that seems so cruel because, I mean, we know that they were obviously taking boys that they knew to quarrel, but to act so concerned mm -hmm. and you know what has happened to them. Yeah. So the, the question there would be whether or not Wayne Henley actually knew that Coral was responsible because so when, um, when these two go missing is before he's been introduced to Coral, but when she talks about him coming back over the, over that time period, she says that it happened during the whole two years before they would find out what actually happened to them. So I think that he had a pretty good idea. And then this whole thing about the, you know, offering to take George fishing, you know, what we do know is that it could have been a ploy to get George to take George to corals also. Um, you know, you, you would hope not, but it could have been. Well, yeah. I mean, it's always a possibility. Plus it would have been an easy target, right? You know, somebody easy to bring to call, uh -huh. you know? So yeah, it's, you know, it, it definitely in, in doing the research on that and hearing that it makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up to, to think of what could possibly have happened to George. Um, so when the parents reported the boys missing to the police and the police told the parents that the boys had simply run away, Selma also begged for the police to look harder. She said, you don't run away with nothing but a bathing suit and 80 cents. So a juvenile investigator for the police department actually told her there are cases or crimes in the city where that has happened. That's insane. I so, mean, even for that time period, plus what was he, 13 years old? Right. Come on. Well, and, you know, interestingly enough, um, not to kind of jump forward, but eventually we will talk about another victim who was found in their bathing suit. And I think, um, you know, when you look at some of these cases, I maybe they did have cases where this strange thing was occurring, but I think you also have to say to yourself that should have caused more investigation. Sure. You know, and I if, mean, if there's more than one victim in a bathing suit and they're at a neighborhood pool, he's using that to prowl. Right. So it, it certainly seems that way. So it certainly seems that way. When David Hildegras uh, went to school at Helms Elementary, he actually came home one day excited to telling his mother that he had met the candy man who passed out free candy to them. She said she did not like the attention that this man was giving to the kids in the neighborhood and she felt that um, he was strange. So she told her children to stay away from him and no longer visit the candy store. Um, Selma made posters for the family and offered a thousand dollar reward. Both families put up posters in the neighborhood. Mally had um, another interesting point about the connection to the candy store was that Mallory had actually worked 
at the candy factory when he was younger, sweeping up floors and um, cleaning up afterwards. And he had introduced his mother to, um, to Coral and also to Coral's mother. And she had gotten hired on there for a short period of time working weekends. Um, and so just to kind of supplement her income. So they, Dean Coral was known to both of these families. She said that Dean was a likable gentleman and that she said that kids worshipped him. She had no reason to suspect that he would be involved in this. And and again, you know... But that's part of the, the thing with these kind of predators. They, they always do come across as likable people. So they're not threatening. Right. They're non-threatening. So... It's grooming almost. It is. Way. It is grooming, mm -hmm. you know, and it's it's before we really even knew that term for it back then. But mm -hmm. that's that's definitely what he was doing was. And he's know, gaining the trust of not only the children but the parents as right. well. You know, the the community mm -hmm. at large. So, um, so the uh, Hildegras actually hired a private detective to help um, find the boys. They had borrowed a thousand dollars from the credit union to pay for the detective during the time that the detective worked on the case they did bring some leads back to the family one of the leads was that a girl claimed that there were people buried alive one boy buried in the sand alive well, i mean how would she know that i mean we're i mean i know that she's being interviewed but so yeah, so she's being interviewed by by uh, a private detective agency. How would she know that? You know, one of the things that I always go back to in this case when you see things like this is there was a, several quotes that said, um, if only they had interviewed the neighborhood children, that there might have been more information that would have been found out. And this is one of those things where I look at this and I'm like, if only we would be asking the neighborhood kids, you know, if only there would have been a little bit more follow-up about where that comes from. Because we do know that Henley, when he gets involved with Coral, he does plant kind of information into the community about what's going on on other victims, which we'll kind of talk about them as we get to their episodes. But we know that from the trial that he did that type of thing. And so this is one of those things that you just wonder was he talking about that or is this kind of from the mouth of babes where they're trying to figure out what's going on and so they're kind of making up these stories mm -hmm. of their own you know you just don't know and because there's not that follow-through to go have a more intensive interview talk to more of these kids you just don't know you know we do know that kids did come forward later and say that there were kids who knew that coral was weird right you know um and and possibly a homosexual who who was doing things to kids so that information may have come out but again sadly when you don't have that kind of follow-up Also in the report that the um, detectives come back with, they say that 
The boys were involved with a drug pusher named Chicken Joe, who also provided young boys to homosexual clients. When the parents went to talk to the police about the information, told the police that they had a report of of this, the police came back and said, well, we actually have reports that the boys are hanging out at a beach house on Crystal Beach, which again, now you have the parents going to Crystal Beach and spending time driving up and down looking for their boys to try to locate them to figure out what had happened to them. The last lead they got from the detective agency was the the boys had been kidnapped by an underground homosexual ring. And so Dorothy uh, Hildegas would actually drive to uh, Houston um, and hang out outside of gay bars um, with her children in the car to see if she could um, see her son um, being trafficked essentially in one of those areas. She would also drive um, the family car around the streets of Houston, Dallas, and even as far as New Orleans looking for her son. She would call the police with any information that she had found during her investigation. One point she had given the police uh, the license plate of a GTX that had been seen in her neighborhood um, that people had said was a little bit suspicious, like talking to the young children, pulling over and talking to the young children and boys. And so she had given that um, information to the police. That car actually turned out to be Coral's uh, GTX. That's so unfortunate that they did not take her more seriously. You know, because she's the real MVP here. Right. Doing all this investigation on her own. And, you know without the support of her police department and they're probably at this point we're just like oh my god it's her again you know unfortunately i think that's exactly you know know, that she she was probably continued to give Mm -hmm. given the brush off and and you know looked at as as the housewife who kind of would not go away um instead of looked at as as, just simply ran away you know as this mother who was was doing you know this incredible investigation you kind of have to wonder what would have happened if police had gone out and talked to him, if he knew that they were that close, because in some ways with his communication to his mother that he has, where he talks about, you know, he's done something and, you know, um, he's depressed. You have a feeling like he knows that it's getting closer and closer. He's planning that uh, trip to Colorado, so it almost looks like he's planning on relocating. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm thinking that he was hearing back from the neighborhood, you know, that people were suspicious in some ways. Because, I mean, people knew who drove that, drove that car. Sure. You know, I mean, it wouldn't have been too hard for some for her to be saying to neighbors who drives this GTX and for them to be like, oh, you know, that's the that's the Candyman's car, you know. Oh, and but people generally probably would have brushed her off with that, too. Oh, he's such a nice guy. Yeah. Yeah. But you just wonder if police would have knocked on the door and said, hey, we want to talk to you. You know, we heard you might have been in the area just asking questions whether or not that would have frightened him, you know. Sadly, if it would have, he could have moved this to another state and started there. And we may have never known the end of the story. Sure. I mean, there could have been more victims, too, right. than 
than what we have here. Or they could have happened to knock on the door when there was a victim there and this could have ended earlier. So you just, you just don't know. Yeah. You just don't know if they had made any kind of intervention, what could have come out of that instead of just brushing her off. Yeah. So holidays, birthdays, and more days would go by with no word from their sons. Then on August 10th, 1973, after returning home from a funeral of Dorothy's sister, a neighborhood a neighbor called the house and told them that she had just heard David's name on the news. Dorothy immediately called the police department, and instead of being transferred to the missing persons uh, detective, a homicide detective, she was transferred to a homicide detective. The officer came out and began to talk to her about homosexuals and then began to tell her about the Henley boy and told them that David was among the boys killed by Coral. When she asked about the neighborhood boy who had been with her son, the officer said he did not know about Gregory and would have to get back to her and check. So again, the fact that this was out on the news before these parents were informed it's heartbreaking. Yeah, it is. So, and all I can say is, you know, that those types of things have been changed, but you know, we sometimes have to remember that just the heartbreakingness that these families went through on hearing this. After hearing the news that their sons may have been among the bodies removed from the boat shed, the families actually went out to the boat shed. They said they needed to be there. They needed to be close. So, A lot of this is known in the last episode, but sadly, Gregory Mallory Winkle and David Hildegrice would be misidentified and their bodies would be buried in Appalachia, Georgia on August 18th, 1973. The bodies were originally identified as Donald Wardrop, age 15, and Jerry Lynn Wardrop, age 13. Since the Wardrop family left Houston area for Georgia, the boys would be buried there. It was later that the medical examiner's office would come out and say that they had misidentified them and that mistakenly the Wardroth boys were still at the medical examiner's offices and Winkle and Hildegrist had actually been buried. And then again, what we know ensues on that is the heartbreaking story of them trying to figure out how to get the uh, their boys back here to Houston and the medical examiner's office and really Harris County fighting them on payment of that. Right. Which is sad because when you think about it, you know, these families have had to go to a credit union to take out a loan to even search for their children now or having to figure out how they're going to pay to bury them. You know, and all I can say is just a shout out to the fact that we have a victim's rights act now and that, you know, these services are helped out and paid for, for people nowadays, as opposed to what was happening back then. Mm So the last victim that we're going to talk about today is Reuben Wilford Watson Haney. And so his last name is really Watson, but he goes by the name Haney too, which is his mother's second marriage name. But uh, he was born Reuben Wilford Watson. On um, August 17th, 1971, he was 17 years old. Reuben was walking um, 
home from the movie theater in Houston when he was approached by Brooks, who asked him to attend a party. Ruben called his mother to say that he was going to spend the night at his friend David Brooks's house. Sadly, he was never seen again. Um, when the newspaper reports come out and cover that his body was one of the bodies uh, buried and discovered in the boat shed and identified, um, they actually use his police mugshot in the papers. That's terrible. That is that is terrible. It just again goes to show you how much of a different time this was, but it makes him look less like a victim. Yeah, it does. You know? it's, it's disrespectful and to think that he went through something so horrific. And right. It's just like, I don't know. It's just so disrespectful, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, I really, <clears throat> really can't. <laughs> this is the one thing. It's it's when you're looking for information on these poor kids is, and you run across these things and you think to yourself, what were you thinking? You know, why, why put him out there? In okay. And tell me again, how old is this kid? He's 17 years old. Now that's, I was just wondering because of the mugshot thing. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know what he did in order to have his mugshot um, taken, um, but I don't think it's important. No. It still is a kid who's just simply walking home and is picked up by a perpetrator. And he's a victim just like any other, any of these other kids are a victim. And I think he should have been treated the exact same way. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for joining us today. We always love to hear from our listeners. So please contact us with any questions that you might have. Um, you can reach us on our Facebook page, Bodies in the Bayous. You can always email us at bodiesinbayous at hotmail.com. And don't forget to listen to us wherever you stream your podcasts.